Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to Journey to Better. Uh, today we're going to be discussing sort of bad work environments and also some of the challenges I think the third generation of CTO operators is dealing with. Um, again, if you want, if you, if, obviously this is live, but if you want to go to the recorded ones, the website is www.drjourneytobetter.com. So today I have Jared Frizzell from the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, and I'm really proud to have Jared here. So Jared, do you want to just give everybody a sort of a brief background of how you ended up in Cincinnati, and then hopefully we can go from there. Oh, sure. Um, and also, I just want to you know give a shout out to you and then John Michael as well for making this available um, for podcasts too, podcast listening. So wherever you get your podcast, um, that, that makes it really easy. I've really enjoyed the conversation so far even though I haven't listened to them live. And I also really like the, uh, the nice uh, intro music you have there as part of that too. Straight <laughs> off like public, like 1980s public access, kind of between two firms by, um, so. Uh, easy big fella, easy big fella. I'm old, uh, <laughs> don't go there yet. No, I'm serious, I really like it. I really enjoy it. <laughs> okay, you know? no, that's all right. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do to better myself is to try to not be sarcastic, which is really hard, I think, for someone of my generation to do. And to actually like just be honest with what I mean and mean what I say. Um, okay. So um, anyway, my, yeah. So my name is Jared Frizzell. Uh, a little bit of background for me: uh, born and raised in Kentucky, went to med school there. Um, actually, did most of my training um, out in New Mexico. Uh, met my wife in med school, and so this is like this is a key part of my story, uh, just in general life, is is meeting Charlotte. And she wanted to do, we were at the University of Kentucky, and then she wanted to go out west. So I actually did most of my training out at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, I did my intern year at UK before transferring out there, and then did a critical care fellowship. Uh, no pulmonary, just straight critical care. And then I did my general cardiology fellowship. And then um, we decided, so we were out there for seven years, and decided to move back east uh, to be closer to family, because, you know, we'd already by then had two kids. And um, we then moved to Indianapolis. Um, I did my interventional year at St. Vincent, Indianapolis. Uh, Jim Hermiller is a program director. And um, during my interventional year, it was just a, a single year, I got exposed to a little bit of everything. Um, you know, St. Vincent's a very high volume center. And obviously they, with Hermiller, they do a ton of structural stuff. Um, but I was really found myself drawn to doing CTOs and complex coronary. Um, it didn't take very long for me to realize a couple of things. One is that um, my tendency is to um, be really, really good at one thing rather than mediocre at a lot of things. And I think that um, personally, that's sort of an emerging thing with um, interventionalists of my generation is that there's so interventional cardiology um, as its own subspecialty has evolved so much that you really have really, you know, big niches within that. And you, you, there are very, very few people out there, if any, honestly, that are truly good at everything. And I just felt myself drawn to the complex coronary. I like the problem solving aspect of it. I like, you know, being able to help people feel better. Um, there's still very few things in medicine that can make such an immediate dramatic difference as opening up a STEMI, for instance. And just the more complicated it was, the more of a challenge that I kind of relished that. And, um, you know, from my standpoint, it kind of, the, the patients just sort of had bad luck to have whatever anatomy they had that made it challenging. And it was up to us to kind of figure that out. And I, I really like that. Um, following uh, that interventional year. So while I was doing interventional, Charlotte 
um, she did residency in orthopedic surgery and uh, she did an ortho trauma fellowship while I did my interventional year. And then we moved from Indianapolis to Evansville, Indiana in the Southwest corner of the state. I was still um, part of the St. Vincent system. And so what I started doing there is I was very upfront when I went there, you know, Evansville uh, has a metro every about 300 metro area of about 300,000 people. So not huge, but not the smallest either. And, um, they, at the time that I joined, they were doing about 300 to 350 PCI annual volume in that lab a year. And um, I was very upfront that, hey, you know, I have this interest in complex coronary disease, I have this interest in CTOs and high-risk stuff. Um, and, you know, this is kind of what I wanted to do. And I was really fortunate to go in there with a lot of uh, goodwill from my background with St. Vincent Indianapolis and so forth. And I think they were ready in Evansville to kind of take on something new and challenging and grow because, you know, they sort of felt in the lab, especially that it's been stagnant for a while. They haven't had any fresh blood. Uh, and so I was able to go there. Uh, I started with another guy named AJ Vocal, um, who is also from the region. And we started out as interventionists there um, where there hasn't been one in, in a new one in quite a while. So we're able to really kind of show new things and I actually had a lot of support in doing complicated, higher risk stuff. And by still being within the St. Vincent system, what I ended up doing actually is driving back to Indianapolis three days a month to do CTOs back there uh, as well, in addition to starting them with Evansville. That's about a three and a half hour one-way drive. Um, and so I did that. And I was in Evansville um, for a little less than a year. And for one reason or another, um, I ended up being the medical director of the cardiovascular service line, as well as the cath lab director. And I continued that for a total of three years before I moved from Evansville back to Indianapolis. And then I actually flipped what I was doing um, and being based in Indianapolis. And I still would drive back to Evansville two days a month um, to do CTOs there. And so I would get up, I would leave the house at 5.30 Eastern time. I would get there a little shy of eight o'clock um, central time. And I would do three to five cases and turn around and drive back home. Uh, by the time I left Evansville, um, they went from doing about between 300 and 350 PCIs a year um, to we were on track to doing a thousand. Um, and that was mainly just doing stuff that just wasn't done before. I mean, literally when I arrived, there were people that were going to hospice within stage angina. Um, so I was really able to help a lot of people in that way. Um, and then uh, at St. Vincent, I was there in Indianapolis for um about a year and a half, and I was driving over a thousand miles a month in outreach, you know, both going to Evansville as well as doing some outreach clinic. And um, we we'll talk more about the details of what I was doing there and what that was like in a bit. But then uh, I got a call from Robert Riley, um, who was then at the Christ Hospital saying that, you know, due to, you know, changes in his life, um, he wanted to move back to Seattle. And he felt drawn back there and asked if I would be interested in taking, uh, taking a look at Christ Hospital as a place to work. Um, some, I was, obviously. I mean, I wound up here. Um, but also some of the background, uh, I don't necessarily have to go into a whole lot of details, but this was a good opportunity for both me and Charlotte. So um, she in Evansville, uh, she is bound by a non-disparagement clause and uh, non-disclosure, but I'm not. So, uh, so I would just flat out say that, you know, she was the first woman that this group hired 
and she was terminated without cause shortly after the birth of our third child. And it was a lot of bullshit, obviously. And it very quickly wow. led to a six figure settlement. And that's really all I'm going to say, because I can already like feel my pulse start to quicken. And so hey, take a breath, take a breath, <laughs> brother. I, we, we're all there for you. We got you. And so, uh, we got you. Um, and so this all happened. Maybe we should have her on to talk about bad work environments. Yeah. I don't think you, you sound like you're living a blessed yeah, life. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just somebody who consistently <laughs> failed upward, I think. Uh, <laughs> but so this happened and we were arranged to go back to Indianapolis and she had a job lined up in Indy. And then this was in March of 2020. And so everything oh, got man. shut down and I, she's ortho trauma. Right. And it turns out that once all of the elective cases get shut down, every orthopod thinks they're a trauma surgeon all of a sudden. And so she was stuck doing locums work for about a year and a half. She was going to Haute, Indiana in the Western part of the state. And she would drive She'd go out there for about a week at a time. And so when Robert called me, you know, Charlotte and I were actively thinking because, you know, her, her job in India kind of been pushed down, pushed down the road, pushed down the road, pushed down the road. Um, and it just, you know, it was apparent that it wasn't going to happen, ever happen. And so we were kind of trying to figure out, you know, where would be our best next move? Um, because one of the things that we found out during this, the hard way, and we already kind of knew this, is that um, of the two of us, if one of us is going to stay home, I I'm more suited to that than she is, just personality-wise. And it, it was really a, a really large struggle um, with us and, you know, with her especially, just dealing with that. And so when this opened up for me, here in Cincinnati, um, there also happened to be um, something open up at Wright State um, or Miami Valley, which is the level one trauma center in Dayton. And Dayton and Cincinnati are actually pretty close together. And um, it was just the right move for both of us. Um, I'll talk more about my job in a bit, but this is obviously the best job that she's ever had. Um, she's in uh, a great program, partners that support her and they have each other's back and they help each other out. And it's like night and day difference. Um, there's also of the five or six trauma pods they have there, three of them are women. And, you know, if we talk about the, the problems with diversity and interventional cardiology, ortho trauma has it all the more. And so it's, it's really it's really been a great move for us in a great spot. So I'll let my monologue in there. But uh, all right. Well, let me let me ask it. I mean, A, God bless Charlotte for A, putting up with you and B, you putting up with her and holy cow. Um, glad the three kids are good and you found a good home. Let me ask, so obviously you've exploded at the Christ sort of by walking into a pre-built place. Do you think both technically, volume-wise and administratively, you'd be where you are right now if you'd stayed at St. Vincent's? Uh, you know, I think that a couple of things. Um, the way that St. Vincent's structured is very different. So um, I think the Christ has opened up a lot of opportunities for me in growth, both, you know, technically as far as, you know, volume and stuff like that, um, but also administratively. Because in St. Vincent, the way that the system was set up for interventionalists is it was sort of like everyone was equal. And that had great pluses and minuses to it. I think that uh, by putting everyone on a level playing field, that really helped build camaraderie. And I personally still judge people that I meet 
and work with based on whether or not I think that they would fit in with the crew of St. Vincent, because it, it really is just a great group of interventionalists. Um, the downside to that, though, is that if you are somebody that tries to develop a certain niche, like in complex coronary disease, you're often held back. Um, you know, like, so everyone had to do so much outreach, everyone had to do, you know, all this other stuff. And what it, you wound up doing is that on average, um, I think it wound out to be you got one and a half to two days in the lab a week, so less than 50% of your time for sure. Now, right. I had to kind of claw my way through and counting me traveling to Evansville, which again, was a seven hour round trip. I was the only person able to do more than 50% in, in the lab. And it's, it's really hard also if you're somebody that the interventionalists refer to and because you automatically have this backlog of patients and you got to put them somewhere. Um, so I was, I was able to get a little bit of that, but I also had to round, you know, eight weeks a year. And I found that I was, you know, doing CTOs when I was rounding just because it was, you know, there and they had to be done. And I would do virtual visits while I was rounding just to get people seen. And I would just be so frustrated. And um, to his credit, my boss, uh, St. Vincent, I think he's still the head of cardiology there, Sandeep Joshi, um, he told me, you know, when I was talking to him about jumping and going to the Christ, is that he told me that I was, you know, I was a caged animal. That's what he said. I was a caged animal. And St. Vincent, you know, because of the structure, was in the cage building system. And uh, he actually encouraged me to go ahead and, and make the leap um, because of that kind of growth. Um, I did have pretty good volume there. Um, you know, since I started at St. Vincent as an attending, um, the total amount of CTOs done in the system almost tripled uh, just because that was kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm sort of maniacal in that respect is that that's all I think about and that's all I do. And I don't know that you should. Well, you're, an, you're a little bit of an animal, apparently. Uh, yeah, apparently. Um, you know, here at the Christ, as part of our CTO program, we I, have, I hope you didn't rip Kevin Ball's eyes out or anything, poor guy. Oh man, uh, Kevin had some hard <laughs> learning. I'll tell you that. Um, you and Ro he, you, he and Robert probably could have some good conversations. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I was able to have being able to come here and not have to worry about you know driving all over the place and all that. And not having to do a lot of the other administrative stuff and be able to focus has been such a relief for me. You know, um, when I was growing up, so to speak, I felt like I had three great role models that were all very different. Um, one was Ed Fry, you know, who's, you know, he was, I think, the immediate past president of the ACC, you know, all this stuff. He was head of cardiology at St. Vincent, as well as Ascension for the country. And he was just a, an awesome, he's a really great person. And he really knows administrative stuff and he's excelled in that. So I kind of had an administrative role model in him. I had somebody like Jim Hermiller, who also, you know, he's guy on the podium, but he also has skills and he's a great teacher and, you know, is really invested in fellow education. And then my third role model was Chuck Orr, um, who knew, you know, but, you know, probably nearly everyone else on this uh, listening don't, doesn't know. Chuck is one of those guys that would be categorized as the best interventionist you've never heard of. You know, he's kind of one of those people. And he didn't care about the podium, didn't care about publications, didn't care about administrative stuff. He just liked to work and do that. And he was really great technically. And when he finally- And drink good red wine. Yeah. And drink good red wine. Yeah, yeah. and drink great red wine. Um, and um, he, uh, you know, he retired at 70 and his last day, you know, he did a CTO. I mean, he was somebody that was always growing. And full disclosure, he was also my father-in-law. I mean, um, I don't, I'm not going to get into psychological stuff, 
uh, regarding my wife, but uh, yeah, he and I in the lab are, are very, very similar in a lot of specs and also different in some key things too. And so I felt like I had those three role models and I knew, you know, fortunately through all the stuff I've done in my short career, I was able to see, hey, you know, I don't want to be Ed Fry when I grow up. You know, that, that path was open to me, but that's not something that I really love doing. And I don't get good energy from that. Um, and then being more like Hermiller and being more like Chuck um, has been very rewarding. And then coming here and being able to kind of just focus on my, my niche has been, has been really great um, for me, you know, mentally, physically, you know, overall well-being. It's been really great. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the culture you worked in and the environment you worked on actually has a big effect on your mental health. You want to touch on that at all? Uh, sure. I would say yes, I agree. I mean, I, I don't feel like I was in a bad environment at St. Vincent, you know, because the, the people there were so well, nice. Then, I, then we're going to have to get rid of you. I got to get a new speaker. Jeez, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I went, you see the title? I, I saw the title <laughs> last week when I was listening. I'm going to get Charlotte. I want to talk to Charlotte. Oh, yeah. She can tell you stories. Um, but like when I saw it, when I was listening to Rianne's uh, talk last week, and I saw, oh, next week, uh, how do you with bad environments uh, with Jared? And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, because when I think of bad, I think of malignant. But um, for me, at least, it was having to deal with the frustrations of the system and having very little control over what you did and how you did it um, and where you were in the day and stuff. And that was the part that I felt frustrating. And, and you know, being, you know, being the caged animal, I guess, um, to quote Sandeep. So... Yeah, and it was really it was mentally taxing. I mean, what I would do is, you know, I will tell you, like driving to Evansville um, and I love the people there and those people. It's really actually it's really close to my hometown in Kentucky. And so I was kind of helping the people I grew up with in a way. Um, but three and a half hours, you know, driving three and a half hours and then doing three to five CTOs and then turning around and driving three and a half hours back um, was was really hard. And doing that, you know, two, three days a, a month. Um, was a lot. It was very taxing. I mean, the positives for it is that I found out some really cool podcasts. And it turns out if you listen to podcasts on 2X, you can get through a lot in seven hours. <laughs> and what I would also do is I would think about cases and I would turn them over again and again. I mean, I know, you know, one of the things that, that you do a great job hitting on again and again is trying to make conscious efforts to improve yourself. And this was the time that I did that. I had that time to myself. Uh, and I would just turn over both past and upcoming cases. You know, what did I do? What should I have done better? How could I have done this more efficiently? And I think a lot of people don't, they spend too much time obsessing over their failures without also obsessing over their successes. Because usually if you fail, you fail for one or two specific reasons. And yeah, you can get, don't get me wrong, you definitely get learning from that, you know, what to do and what not to do. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of learning to be had in your successes as well. And hopefully your successes are more than your failures. Otherwise you should kind of, you have more questions to answer. Um, but, you know, why did it, you know, why did this end up working? Why did it take me so long to get to that? You know, was it because it was more risky? Was it because I just didn't think of it in time? Um, and so I feel like for everything you can learn from a failure, you can learn so much more from some successes if you just sit down and, you know, think through each step of the way. And that's how you get faster. Like another thing, another problem, uh, if you will, about the St. Vincent system is that they, because they locked down our schedule nine months in advance, I couldn't really go to courses. 
I couldn't really, you know, go to a lot of conferences and some other stuff. And so I kind of grew up in a silo. Um, and this is something else I think maybe we'll touch on later, but I, I didn't really have um, a good network, you know, like you and the other OGs. So I think, you know, that kind of bounced ideas off of each other and were there for support. Um, you know, I had, I had friends obviously, um, but I didn't have a lot of people within the CTO community that I really connected with. And, you know, I didn't really also felt like I had that much opportunity to connect with that. Um, just growing up in that and having, you know, being so limited in that respect. And so a lot of things that I sort of figured out on my own, I kind of wish somebody had told me earlier. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I don't know, I guess it made me a better operator in hindsight, but it didn't help with frustration in the moment. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, we, we took a poll, right. And 70% of people, said administration is really the problem of a bad environment. And, and in some ways, for you to actually grow at CTOs, you had to leave your system because the administrations, again, the everybody's the same. We're going to do it the same way. We're going to lock everything in, took away the ability to try and get better, right? And I think, you know, you had other things pulling you in other directions, but I do think that's important for those out there. You have to really look at your environment and is it going to allow you to be successful? I guess I'd ask if you had advice for people out there about how to get successful, what kind of environment or what kind of things might they do to try and help their administration allow them to progress? Well, I, th I think a couple of things um, spring to mind. Hopefully I remember enough about both of them. But one thing I want to say is that one of the best lessons I've learned um, is learn how to say no and learn when to say no. Because I feel like a lot of times um, part of the problem is that especially starting out and you're new and like you end up getting drafted into all sorts of stuff that you may or may not want to do or uh, you know, getting sucked into whether it's meetings or committees or whatever, but learning how to say no and carving out the time for what's important is, you know, honestly, it's one of the most important things you can do. And related to that is, and this is also going to be, you know, dealing with administration and that sort of thing, is you have a choice in what you care about and how much you care about it. You can't do everything all at once. And that's whether it's in your personal life, in your professional life, whether it's getting, you know, X, Y, and Z equipment or whatever. And you could either spend your time just being frustrated because you don't get anything, or you can focus on this one, two, and three that you really, really need and put all your energy there. So I think that's something that people need to keep in mind. Um, the other thing that I would say, and I've always been, I've always been like this, um, is that sometimes I just need some time alone with a spreadsheet and to, to collect my thoughts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a data nerd, you know, by habit. Uh, I, you know, when I did my master's in clinical research, I focused on bioinformatics. Um, I did some machine learning stuff. I did some other kind of database research, um, but learning how to deal with that is something that I like doing. And it came natural to me to just keep track of everything that I did. 
And so I can look back for the entirety of my you know, career and point to every PCI I did, every CTO I did, and what their outcomes are like. You know, did they have any, you know, mace? Um, did they have like just any complications whatsoever? What was the strategy that worked? You know, how much fluoro did I use? How much contrast did I use? You know, all of that stuff. How many anti-angels are they on? What's the JCTO score? And I have a pretty comprehensive spreadsheet of every CTO I've ever done. And that actually helped me a lot whenever I had to make my arguments. Um, so for one instance, in dealing with the St. Vincent system and having to make my case for, you know, broadening the CTO and getting more days and that sort of stuff is I, at one point, just went around asking people. I did kind of my own, like, personal Mythbusters thing. Hey, you know, just out of curiosity, I'd run into somebody in the lab. How, what do you think about CTOs? Or what do you think our success rate is? What do you think our complication rate is? Because people tend to remember the, the drama, right? If you have a big dramatic complication, that's what sticks in other people's minds and maybe even your own. But if they hear, like, you know, if they think that, uh, you know, I think you probably get most of them. But if you tell them, hey, no, actually, we get 85% or 90% or 92% or whatever it is that year, that's what we get. And, you know, these are our complication rates are actually, you know, much lower than you think. Um, owning your own data. And then part of that, too, is... And this is just me like just sucking up data is I got in the habit when I was in Evansville dealing with the service line of looking at finances and stuff like that and figuring out how hospital money works because it's all funny money, really. And they kind of make it up as they go along. And um, the more you know about that, I think that the better it helps you make your own case and say, you know, actually, you know, the CTOs, even though I use all this equipment, it's very financially viable, you know, because of X, Y and Z. And so that would be the other thing I would yeah. say is you know, learn the language and, you know, just as you need to figure out what's important to you, you also need to figure out what's important to the system because the system doesn't love you and the system will not love you. You know, there may be individuals within there that really care about you, but the system as a whole doesn't. And so you just need to figure out how to make your best case. And the more that you own and control your own data, the more you're able to do that before someone else does it for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's funny because, you know, I ran, I was the, on the management committee of my group and I was the service line director at the hospital. And, you know, one of the things you had to learn is business speak. And so they started talking about all the direct expenses, CTOs. And then I went and said, well, but here's the contribution margin and the added volume. And they're like, oh, we'll keep going. You know, actually, when I came to the UW, the UW was doing 275 PCIs a year. And I said, you know, I went to the chief and I said, well, Here's the volume of procedures I'm going to add. I'm going to double your volume in a year. And here's the economics of the procedures. And he goes, oh, I don't need an FTE. We can just hire you. And, you know, we do 1,000 PCIs now. We've had no change in insurance, no change in cath rate. And in the they don't love you, I just got a form letter from the CEO of UW Health, uh, UW and the Dean of the Medicine, to congratulate me on my uh, Hearts Award. And it's the exact same form letter they gave my partner for winning top doc in Seattle. So as you said, the institutions don't love you and they don't care. And so if you don't, you don't protect yourself from the bully, you know, you better be careful. You know, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite is, you know, every hospital system in the country is losing money right now. So my favorite question is budget or actual? Yes. And the moment you say that they stop talking and run away. And they, the reason is, Budget is hospital systems in general basically up the profit margin every year, despite the fact they're nonprofit. So 
if the EBITDA, the profit margin the year before was 10%, this year it's 12%, and next year it's 13%, and the next year it's 14%. And actual is actually the contribution margin, how much they money they're making. And so what happens is last year they made a 10% profit margin. This year they budgeted a 12% profit margin, but they're only I think I lost you. Can you still hear me? Sorry, I called. Oh, are you there? Yeah, I can hear you now. All right. Before we get totally off the rails on the wonders of administration, I think the, the points that you're trying to make, if I hear you, are know your data, know your economics, learn how to speak administration, know how to avoid getting bullied, and know when not to waste your time on a battle that you're going to lose versus a battle you're going to win, and realize there comes a point where you may not be able to get to do what you want to do, and at that point, you may have to think about moving to a new place with a different culture. That a reasonable solution? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I would say, you know, know yourself. I would just add that, you know, you have to uh, you know, you've been very open about your your journey over the past few years in particular, but I think you know you need to look inside yourself and figure out what it is that you really want, um, because you can't have everything. And sometimes that involves you know a change of scenery, a change of jobs. Sometimes it just involves a change of your perspective of what you really want to do. And I know that everyone wants to go out of fellowship and do 100 or 150 or some made up number of CTOs a year, but you know, you just have to figure out what you really want and how much you really want to chase it. Um, you know, I think in, in jobs in general, you can either pick where you want to live, pick how much you want to make, or pick what you want to do. And at most, you can probably fix one of those variables. And it's really, really challenging to fix two of those variables. Yeah, I think that's, that's really great advice. I, I, t I tend to use the word sacrifice. It's what are you going to sacrifice to get what you want? And again, those are three nice buckets to play in it. In a, in a bit of a transition, because um, I want to make sure this gets in, I want you to talk about fires and candles. And I want to use that as a lead-in to the third generation of CTO operators and the struggles that they've had to get going and maybe some of the things we can do to help them avoid that loud bird in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> One of the things that I really like um, – our front porches. You know, I grew up in the country. Um, it's really, it's really nice to have that. And that's one of the things that Charlotte and I in particular really like and I look for in a house. And I just happen to have a great front porch now. So I'm out here. Um, uh, not Good. quite twilight. There's a dog chewing on a bone in front of me and there's a Creek running close by. So yeah, uh, in a good spot. Uh, so, so candles and fires. This is something that um, to kind of do a callback to something we briefly discussed earlier was about building that community and feeling like I was in a silo. And um, one of the things that has been really helpful to me, especially over the past year, is getting connected with more and more um, young operators. 
And um, previously, I was primarily, you know, restricted is not the best word, I would say, but I mainly knew people within the St. Vincent silo, you know, like Mike Carani, my, my partner of many years at St. Vincent, who was also doing CTOs and is still there. Um, and then training people like Kevin Ball or Ethan Oates or Jared Krasofi or Luke Siebold, and those people have gone off and do great things, but not really breaking outside of that bubble. And one of the things that's been really nice for me over the past year in particular is meeting people outside that bubble and, you know, forming this network of bouncing ideas off of each other. You know, folks like, you know, Katie Dawson and, you know, Kate Carney and Brett Wanamaker, Lindsay Celia, Catherine Kunkel, you know, Amy Mertens even has been, has been really nice too to bounce stuff off of back and forth and kind of, you know, feeling out this environment and it's it's been really rewarding to me to see these others and you know it's it's not as intimidating in a lot of respects as kind of having somebody like you or tony or some of like the the big luminaries in the field um, because you have that freedom of failing and you don't have intimidation and it's really hard i think whenever you're talking with your partners even to say, you know, to be so self-critical because if they see a closed vessel and they see an open vessel, they're like, oh, you did a great job. And you're like, no, these are other like 10 other things that I could have done better and I need to talk through. Um, and one of the um, sort of, and for some reason, uh, when I was at CTO Plus this past year, I had this kind of epiphany late in the late in night and um, I, I texted it to several of them, uh, this analogy that I'm 100% sure that I didn't make up. But you know, whenever you look out, especially in kind of like a high power community, like inter interventional cardiology, you have two basic types of people that tend to shine. And we probably know people with both of those. One is that they, they start something special and they get noticed that they're, that they're special and they start burning and it, it, they start shining and it makes them feel really good to shine, to provide warmth, to provide light and the more people kind of acknowledge that, the more they tend to grow and grow. And eventually they kind of become this raging fire. And the fire does really well. I mean, fires can keep people warm. It can cook your food. It can, you know, light up the room. But, you know, if people get too close, they end up getting burned. And once they see that they can do more and more, they may start to grow and they end up burning out. Um, because there's not really a way to share that. Once they break out of the fireplace, it just tends to burn the house to the ground and it can be really destructive. And the other type are people that start to shine and they end up being more of like a candle. And they realize that I can provide this light and I can provide a little bit of warmth and I can be used to light a fire, um, but I can also be used to light another candle. And a candle doesn't lose anything by lighting another candle. But once it ends up happening is that once you light one candle and then that one lights another, and then before you know it, it's not just the room is bright and warm, but the whole house is lit up. And you can actually take that flame you know, to another house and to another house and so on. And the point is that we'll all burn out eventually, but it's what we do with our own fire while we have it. Are we using it just for ourselves or are we using it to try, try to spread and, and build that community? And I feel like that uh, among you all, I keep calling you the OGs, um, but the ones that kind of were original uh, doing CTOs here in the U.S., um, you all had that kind of community. And it just seemed like 
as time went on, I, when I was looking out at the CTO community, I would see a lot of these fires, but not a lot of these candles. And maybe part of it was because I was in my own silo and didn't see it. But you had people that, you know, maybe they were doing it more for themselves or more for the podium or just weren't as good about reaching out and connected with others. And that's where I really see the future uh, going because, you know, for me, having these other people there um, has been really important. And, and that's what you know, one of the biggest things that I see in the future is starting to build those communities um, and lighting those other fires and having that. Because it's one thing to just go to a course and see a uh, someone else do pieces. Oh, Zia, you're okay. <laughs> Uh, let me look. There you go. All good. Um, it's one thing to go to a course and see cases, but it's another thing to build a community around that. Oh, there's deer. That's why. Um, it's another thing to build a community around that and being able to have that freedom to express yourself, the freedoms to succeed and the freedom to fail. Uh, I am not really a fan of the great man theory where you have like some lone genius that, that comes up with something. Because as many people as are all like that in history, there's been, you know, tons of others that have been squashed by those so-called great men and not allowed to bloom. And once you build that community and, and everyone has the freedom to speak and to come up with stuff, you start to get better and brighter ideas. And, and that's, yeah, so that's one thing that really excites me about the future is being able to build that. Um, one of the things that I'm starting to work on now is, um, uh, and this sprang from this discussion that I had at CTO Plus, um, is essentially coming up with uh, a sort of a course thing of gathering these younger operators and figuring out and talking frankly, you know, it's not about the, it's not necessarily about just doing cases. It's about how do you push yourselves forward and how do you build that community in order to become resilient, to stand up to the challenges of not just today, but tomorrow. Um, and then start, try to start that spread. Um, because honestly, I mean, I know you don't feel like you're intimidating, but, you know, I, I had your number for like six years before I ever asked you about a case. And, you know, you also like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, half of, uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, you know, half the interventionalist in the U.S. I'm has a, your number. Apparently I'm, apparently I'm a fireman. Damn, you hurt my feelings. You're transitioning to a, can to a large candle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, does that make sense? I know I'm kind of, uh, I'll start to ramble yeah, a little no. bit. Well, I guess, so here, let's work a little constructively, okay? How do you identify the other candles? And how do you make sure that some of the candles don't become fires and quash people? Because, you know, I would tell you, as part of the OG, I would tell you, we built a lot of fires in the second generation. Yes. And the third generation, we're trying to build candles. And part of that is it, sometimes you think you're lighting a candle, but the candle burns the house down. Yeah. And so how do you, and you're the young guns, we'll, we'll use your term. How are you and the young guns? How do you build your community, let the candles grow, but prevent the fires from melting people? Since I'm going to use your analogy further. You know, I, I think that that even, you know, that that's a great example of why I think the analogy resonates with me is because you can easily see a candle turning into something that burns down the house. 
you know, a, a candle that's left untended will also have those unintended consequences. And the, the short answer, honestly, is I don't know. The best answer I have is you have to have internal checks within the system and being willing to call each other out and saying like, you know, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be a public thing per se, but you have to be able to both trust other people that you've made, other friends that you've made, as well as open yourself up to those other people and be willing to be vulnerable and saying, hey, I trust you all to call me out whenever I'm out of line. I trust you all to hold myself accountable. You know, that's what a, that's what a true community does is it holds one another accountable. And I think that you all had, you all had other problems um, as far as starting something more or less from scratch. And you kind of had to be, you know, very vocal and very hard charging. And, you know, when I think of you all, you're all very different. Like when I think of the OGs, and even the, the generation under you, you're all very different in key respects, even though you're, you share obviously some similarities. You know, we all tend to be kind of stronger personalities in this field. Um, but even when you look at something like, you know, The Breakfast Club, right? You know, classic movie, those people aren't going to be like BFFs forever because they're all so different. And the farther along you get, the more those differences kind of emerge. And you just have to trust yourself to trust one another to hold each other accountable for all that and to call each other out. And I think that it was probably harder for you all starting something from scratch than it is for us, like building, you know, already having that, this is an established thing, but it's going to be really challenging. Um, and how, what, what I kind of see happening, what I kind of see and my hope would be to have essentially different regions um, to where there's people, instead of, you know, being spread all across the country, you have a cluster of people like, you know, this is the people in New England, this is the people in the South or the Midwest or whatever. And once you become less spread, you become a tighter knit community. And, you know, I hope that you're able to trust each other to hold each other accountable, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I mean, I'm open to any insight. I, I, well, I, I, I would tell you a couple things. I think, one, the you've got to be careful of underestimating human nature. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, interventional cardiologists and academic medicine and private practice and the way we train is all about fires and burning everybody else down. And I think the other piece that I would warn the third generation is a lot of what the second generation did to become great and potentially some of the first generation, what they did to get great, they stopped doing once they got perceived as great, which is they stopped learning because they didn't want to be vulnerable to the fact that they weren't great. And they didn't want others to perceive them as they weren't that good. And I think for me, part of this is the mental piece of what got you here may not get you where you're going. And the other is, if your goal is to get to X, that's a mistake. Being a striver, following the numbers, playing the data and going to the goal, finishing the race, this isn't a race. It's a journey. And there's no end to it. And I think it's really important that you be mindful 
of your community is to who's there to show off what a great fire they are. Who's there still striving to improve and who's there to basically try to dominate by sheer will or personality because there's a void inside of them that is so empty that there's just any adulation they will take to fill that void to make them feel worthy. And I think if you're focused on the mental well-being of your community and if you're focused on holding people accountable to betterment and you really try to exclude people who are using you to gain fame and the big person name in their lab, in the long run, you're going to be better. And, and I was listening to this the other night. And, and what I would say is we have almost no mentorship in medicine. We have sponsorship, which sponsorship gives people opportunities. Mentorship is about unconditional love and promoting people to be better than you. And the problem in our generation was we had a bunch of people whose goal was to be not just better than you, prove they were better than you, only were better than you, and were threatened by you. And which is sad because you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people. You should just trying to be a better version of yourself. And what happens is you get to a point, and this came up with several people have been told, well, I'll never be as good as you. I'll never be this. I'll never be that. Only 20 people can do this. And I would tell you is you're missing the point. It's not what can I do? It's are you doing the things to keep getting better or have you become so afraid of failure? You've been so afraid of losing your place in the world. Are you so afraid of who you are as a person that you stop growing? And so for me, you know, the last five years of my career, what I'm trying to do is be a mentor. And a mentor hopes that the third generation takes this space a lot further and outshines all of us and helps a whole lot more people than we ever did. And the key in that is a good mentor hopes their student will be better. And I'll tell you, Jared, you and the young guns, I know you're going to be better than us because you're wiser, quicker, and younger. And you're going to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that institutional fame, hospital association fame, specialty fame, and you're going to stay focused on helping those around you burn brighter than you. And if you keep focused on that and can help keep people accountable and make sure the people on the bus are those kind of people, you're going to, you're going to do it well and do it better. You're on mute, by the way. You have 12 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to put yeah, you, you get to ask me questions now. Well, so I, um, yeah, obviously, that's kind of hard to follow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to just quit? But, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I'm not a quitter. Uh, no. Um, You're a caged so, animal. Come out fighting. That's, that's right. Um, so what, what I would say is that um, all the stuff that you just said, I completely agree with, and I can obviously see, 
And, you know, my generation of interventionalists, you know, I can I can think of people off the top of my head that would fit those characterizations. And um, what I keep coming back to as I was listening to that is just thinking about how um, the key to a lot of this is is finding that community to be vulnerable with. And as long as you're able to keep each other honest, hopefully you fall into those pitfalls. Um, What I think is different about our generation versus yours could be that, you know, it seems like it was just harder to start things up uh, in a lot of respects and you needed those fires to start things up. And that obviously attracted a certain amount of people and I feel like the, the big challenge, as you kind of, I agree with you that the big challenge for my generation is going to be to keep the candles going. And for those that try to burn down the house, I guess you, what do you do with those? You know, that's kind of, I guess, an open question to you as to what do you think we do with those? Do you, do you kind of starve them of oxygen? That's how you put out a fire, ultimately. Um, but that's also really challenging to do. Um, I feel like if you have enough community and enough people together that essentially by crowdsourcing, you'll be able to diffuse that kind of energy. Um, but I think, I don't know, that I think to me is honestly the, the biggest challenge in the CTO community coming forward. It's not, tech, it's, not, it's not devices, it's not putting things forward. It's about community and making, not only the, building the community and making it open and accessible to everyone, but also in being a safe harbor, if you will, in some respects. Um, but also making a case for YCTOPCI in this era. I I don't want to lose this train because you're going off a little bit. You hit the key point. I actually was fist pumping in here because I was so excited. The key is to stay vulnerable. The key is to never think you're all that in a bag of chips. The key is to never think you have it that great. The key is to never suppress other ideas and other people but be open to them, learn, figure them out. And after you've done it and your group has done it, move on. And I would tell you the danger is the fires are your friends or they're your children or they're your mentees. And it takes an immense amount of courage to figure out how to hold those people accountable and when to hold them accountable. I know that I've made many mistakes in my career because during live cases, I would try to coach people and all it did was upset them because they didn't want me to coach. All they wanted me to do was be proud of them and tell them that they were great and that I was proud of what they'd done and that they were good enough and that they were good and worthy people. And I think for me, that's a a mistake I made in my life, which is I I grew up in an environment that was so demanding about being better and being perfect that it was hard for me to allow people the grace to be good enough. And I think that's something you guys ought to think long and hard about as you deal with this is figuring out that vulnerability, figuring out that grace, figuring out the accountability and also the openness to being wrong and also the openness to shutter people who potentially are being destructive to those around them rather than really supporting them. And that doesn't mean you have to confront them. 
it just may means like you said, a, a you know, you never, you know, this isn't politics. You don't need to make everybody happy. That's one of the mistakes we made. We wanted to make a bunch of people happy. What you need to do is make the right people happy at the right time in the right way. And I think that that is, at least for me, some advice. And I don't know if anybody on here wants to ask questions or if, if we know how or how to deal with that. But, um, you know, I don't know, Jared, I mean, do you want to, I mean, you, you've got a, a key core, you know, you and Kate and Rianne and Brett and Leah and Lindsay and Catherine and Katie, you know, and, there, and a bunch of people I'm not mentioning, but you guys have a great responsibility to do it better. You won't get it right. You just got to do it a little better. Yeah, so no pressure, huh? Hey, you're <laughs> yeah, you're talking to the most intimidating person on earth who just wants to like help people, but nobody will talk to me because they think I'm some giant, I don't know, whatever. Well, you know, <laughs> how, how do I know, become less intimidating, man? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> that, that's a whole separate issue. You know, you, you know, I get it. It's not like your Zeus coming down from, you know, Olympus throwing lightning bolts. Um, but you know, one of the, I don't know. I think one of the best things that I have is, you know, to try to try to organize my thoughts here. But you know, a having breath. a lot of self a having a lot of self insight has really helped. And you know, yep. that's been my own kind of journey. And I know you've had your own journey with that. Um, I really try to learn from the mistakes of others. Um, but damned if my own mistakes don't stick with me better. And um, ain't that the truth? You know, <laughs> And I think you're absolutely right about, you know, I, I just keep coming back to the community because that's what it's all about. And one of the things about me, for instance, um, that made it hard to build this initially, not just because of the restrictions I had within my old system, but I realized that not everyone's an, ex, an extrovert. You know, I'm not an extrovert. I'm sort of an ambivert. Um, you know, I have introvertish tendencies. Uh, I think of it as terms of social capital, like I have to, you know, make small investments over time in order to build something up. Um, and if I have too many at once, I get spread too thin and I don't have enough capital to, to, to fund it. Um, and I spent several years, you know, when I went to conference, I spent a lot of times in my hotel room and stuff, just kind of taking a breather and stuff like that. But once you make those connections, I think that's key. Uh, and I know that, you know, you're going to have people, uh, there's going to be some people coming out this summer to Seattle. There's some people that made connections at CTO plus, which, you know, I can't recommend high enough as a conference, but I felt like the best, honestly, was whenever there was just a couple of dozen of us, uh, maybe even 12 or 15, how many were out there last July? Um, 26. Yeah. 26. So at the university of Washington and, um, you know, we, we, we met out there, we had kind of like a, a just a, wasn't even a course, really. It was just kind of getting together and like see, doing hard cases and talking about it. And some of the best relationships was that small. And for me, that's what worked was these small environments. And it started out, what came out of that for me was the Slow Hikers Club, which was because Katie Dawson, <laughs> Catherine Kunkel, and I were the slowest people on this hike. And we just started talking. And that's when I learned, like, oh, so somehow I became a de facto leader of this group, I think, because I'm the oldest and have the most gray hair. And the, the first thing I did when, you know, I came to, to meet you later that night was ask, where's the ibuprofen? You know, because I'm that, I'm that old now. 
And, um, you know, to, to growing that and Kate was gracious enough that even though she was fast, she stayed behind with us. And then growing from that, you know, meeting other people like, you know, you know, like Brett and Lindsay and stuff like that. And that that's kind of where a lot of this um, young guns and the, the candles and stuff grew from. And I feel like those kind of connections are the ones that's really needed. And, you know, that and that's something I think I would look forward to building in the next generation is those kind of courses, if you will, not even use the, use the term course, but those kind of mini conferences to build those personal connections. Because going to massive things with hundreds of people doesn't always make those connections. And I feel like one of the things when I went to CTO courses in the past that I should have done, and even when I, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to run stuff now that I should have made an effort to is following up with those people is, you know, asking them, hey, what, what kind of cases do you have going up? What, what, what's going on? What can I help you with? And to make it personal, um, I feel like that's kind of the next step in all this is to make it personal and to help each other become better. Um, because it's not always about me becoming better. It's about someone else becoming better. Right. Um, I, don't know, I think that kind of hits the theme of, yeah. of this whole thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to finish up with, which is the, the, the challenge you're going to find, and Kate's already finding, is you're becoming intimidating because of your stature. And what I would tell everybody out there is, I started off as a general cardiologist doing intervention in Bellingham. Jared started off in Evansville. We're people. Don't be intimidated by the title, the name, the history. All of that is garbage. We're just people. And you need to push back that and ask for help and ask to be part of it. We're vulnerable people. You need to be vulnerable. We're here to help. And I think that's the way I would leave it for everybody is the way you build these relationships is have the courage to ask those you don't think will talk to you because you know what? All of us in this community want to talk to you, want to help you, and want to do it better. And with that, I'm going to say, Jared, thank you so much for a great hour. I really appreciate Yeah. Are you still there? Did we cut off? Website. DrJourneyToBetter.com. Hey, Thanks, can I just can I put in one more thing real quick as we close? Yep. Um, I just want to say, you know, just to follow up on that. Now, you know, for me, example, uh, you know, I went to Western Kentucky University. I went to University of Kentucky. I was really intimidated by all these Ivy League people or whatever, but we're all just real people. And the thing that keeps coming to me as the father of young children is uh, in the movie Ratatouille. Um, one of the themes from that um, is that um, anyone can cook and it's sort of flipped on its end. If you haven't seen it, you need to, is that it's not necessarily that anyone could cook is that great cooks can come from anywhere. Yep. And great interventionalists, great operators, great doctors can come from anywhere. And yeah, we're all just people. I, I, I will tell you, I try really hard. Anybody who wants to talk to me, I try to talk to them. And the reason being is you don't know who the next Bill Lombardi is going to be. And I got treated, people ignored me a lot of my career. Jared Frizzell, you know, you need help. If you don't know, nobody will have ever known who Katie is or Katie Dawson. You don't know who the next Marty Leone's going to be. That person is somebody we don't know. And the key to becoming that person is 
we give them opportunity. And I think that's important for your, the young guns is keep making sure you're staying vulnerable, you're staying down to earth, and you're reaching out to everyone and following through with them because you never know who the next Jared Frizzell is going to be, and that's who we need. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night, Jared. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you.